Today on State Scoop's Priorities Podcast from Scoop News Group. What's next for New York State? Bolstering Next Gen 911 in Ohio and reflections from nearly two decades in the state and local market. Welcome to State Scoop's Priorities Podcast. Every Thursday, you'll get insights into the state and local government technology community. You'll hear from top leaders across the state and local world and learn about the latest news and trends ahead for the industry. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Here's what's happening this week. The National Association of Counties is creating a new committee to explore artificial intelligence. The new 15-member committee will explore the policies, applications, and potential consequences of AI at county agencies. Travis County, Texas Judge Andy Brown and Palm Beach County, Florida Mayor Greg Weiss will chair the committee. Washington State's Tech Bureau is staffing up with the hire of a new CISO, CDO, CTO, and Chief of Staff in recent months. The state's CIO says these hires are enabling him to more effectively manage statewide efforts on cyber, digital services, data analytics, and enterprise architecture. Cybersecurity planning and training is lacking across multiple branches of government in Utah, according to a report from the state legislature's watchdog office. The state's Office of the Legislator Auditor General found that many agencies have not taken steps to establish cybersecurity frameworks or require employees to undergo routine cyber hygiene training. You can find these stories and more at statescoop.com and in links in today's show notes. The Federal Trade Commission has voted to adopt a statement about the usage of consumer biometric data by companies uh, while citing concerns about privacy, data security, and the potential for bias and discrimination. The statement also stands as the first formal position from the federal government on what it will consider as a biometric identifier. Keely Quinlan has been covering privacy for StateScoop. She's with me now. Keely, tell me about the statement and what it means for biometric data right now. Right. So this statement, which was released on May 18th and adopted by the commission, um, was, you know, just like you said, the uh, first kind of gesture towards um, taking biometric data as seriously as it does other general consumer data. Um, so, right, like in addition to laying out some of these practices um, with, with handling consumer data and specifically biometric data, um, that it might start considering as a potential violation of Section 5 of the FTC Act, Um, The commission also uh, cited some concerns about uh, privacy, data security, and the potential for bias and discrimination when it comes to biometric data. Um, Included in in the policy statement um, were a number of studies that have come out in recent years showing that facial recognition softwares in particular have a predisposition to bias, especially when it comes to non-white faces. And um, to reiterate what you said, you know, it also stands as like the first formal um, position on what the commission will consider as a biometric identifier. One of the things that kind of flew under the radar, I think, um, was its inclusion of data derived from images and videos as biometric data. Um, and what, what's significant about this is there's so much variance from state to state on what is legally protected as biometric data. Um, And there are standing state laws currently that cover biometrics, but they don't necessarily concur with the notion that data derived from um, data um, or data derived from images, um, you know, uh, such as like a face or um, a picture of a person's walk or something like that counts as biometrics, even though, you know, privacy experts that I spoke to and essentially said that images is where the majority of biometric data comes from anyways. And so 
we said that this is the first federal sort of statement on what it means for biometric data right now, but I, but many states across the country have have put in some laws, not just on biometric data, but privacy in general. So sort of what is the what is the state of privacy as it stands right now across the states? A right, lot of states so, there. <laughs> right. Um, so to take a more narrow uh, focus on biometric privacy, because to talk about privacy generally across the country um, would be kind of a mouthful. But um, as far as legacy uh, biometric privacy regulation goes, there's one in particular that's kind of hailed as the, the gold standard, and that is the Illinois uh, biometric uh, law, also known as BIPA. Um, and what experts and uh, privacy, experts in privacy say um, is most important about this, this bill, or law rather, um, is that it's the most effective and enforceable because it has a private right of action, which allows individuals to bring action against companies that are found in violation, rather than, say, having to wait for an attorney general to take action um, when there's um, some sort of, you know, mass of complaints. Um, now, um, that was passed in 2008, and since other states such as Texas and Washington have enacted biometric-specific privacy laws, but they're not totally enforceable because they don't have this private right of action. Instead, again, like I said, they have to rely on the attorney general to take action. Um, so, but now up to the current year, um, some states such as Maine are attempting to pass their own versions of the BIPA style legislation um, with, you know, the private right of action and all that. Um, and, you know, they're lar largely modeled on the, on the Illinois law. Um, in the last five years or so, though, to kind of, you know, expand our focus outwards, um, comprehensive data privacy laws have kind of taken hold as the catch-all for upping the rigor around privacy measures that private entities are held to. Um, so, you know, we've got the CCPA in California. Um, there's one in Virginia in particular um, that's kind of served as the model for a lot of other states, such as Tennessee. Um, but in total, I believe we now have eight states um, that have passed a comprehensive data privacy law. And what they're meant to do is to generally bolster um, consumer privacy by mandating consent when they're uh, using a consumer's personally identifiable information. Um, some states go the opt-in route with, with consent. Some states go the opt-out route. And others have different qualifications for the uh, sizes of companies. For example, in Iowa's privacy law, um, it applies to businesses that either control or process personal data of at least 100,000 consumers in Iowa or control or process data of at least 25,000 Iowa customers and derive 50% of their gross revenue from the sale of that data. So there's like all of these different metrics involved, um, whereas other states have specific carve-outs or even exemptions for smaller companies that handle consumer data. So generally, all of that is to say that privacy is kind of all over the place um, nationwide, um, but there are certain laws um, that kind of do a better job than these comprehensive laws at protecting some of our most sensitive data. So the key idea there is that like comprehensive might not mean comprehensive, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, there are, you know, um, certain requirements within these laws that, you know, really do do a good job of, um, you know, informing consumers of uh, data practices, um, ensuring that there are 
uh, certain privacy requirements, deletion requirements after, you know, a certain amount of time. Um, in addition, you know, a consumer can request that their data be deleted in certain circumstances. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of all over the place. And so there's movement across several states right now to do various things when it comes to privacy legislation, one of which is Washington State's My Health, My Data Act, which passed last month. What's different about a bill like this? What does it mean for Washington State and beyond? It's particularly novel when looking at it compared to these comprehensive data uh, privacy style laws and bills, because it's got a broader definition of biometrics. Um, and it agrees with the FTC and that taking and the data taken from an image, for example, is a covered biometric identifier. Um, it's also the first health data specific privacy law. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, Washington is one of the few states that has a specific uh, biometric uh, law. Um, but My Health, My Data kind of builds on that in a sense and expands those definitions, like I said, to include images. Now, when I talked to the Washington State Representative, um, Representative Vandana Slaughter, she said that the inspiration from the bill came from the overturning of Roe v. Wade last year, which in you know certain states kind of meant that um, abortion access would either be curtailed or completely restricted. Um, and she took some of the architecture from these comprehensive data privacy laws, um, but added in these very broad definitions, right, of biometrics, um, because what she was finding was these laws didn't really measure up to the amount of security that was needed when it comes to biometric data and health data generally, right? Like if we're thinking about an instance um, in a certain state where, um, you know, uh, the rolling back of Roe v. Wade meant that, you know, these uh, laws banning abortion would go into effect and therefore health data becomes pertinent to a law enforcement investigation or something like that. Um, she said that that was what was front of mind for her. Um, but more generally, you know, when it comes to protecting health data and biometrics, there is, you know, a certain amount of security that's required that's not really found with the comprehensive style laws. So let's let's tie it all to, together here. I mean, why why is this sort of an important angle to take when thinking about state level privacy legislation in the context of everything that we're talking about here? Right. So with biometrics, particularly, it's your most precarious data, right? Like you can change your social or social security number. Even you can change your credit card. You can, um, you know, there's certain data that while yes, it's personally identifiable, it is, it is changeable. Your fingerprint, your face print, um, your voice even, um, those are things that aren't changeable, really. Um, so, I mean, unless you go the plastic surgery route, but that's like a whole other thing. <laughs> um, but I think generally what these laws are doing and now with confirmation from the FTC via its policy statement signal signals that companies just really need to take biometric privacy more seriously. Um, and a lot of these laws, what is really interesting about them is that they don't just apply right to businesses that say operate in Washington or operate in um, in Texas. They apply to businesses that process 
retain or sell said data of a certain number of residents. Um, so, you know, they the impact is like really far reaching. Um, and hopefully it might inspire some more forward thinking to ensure that biometric data and even like most personally identifiable data generally is safe and consumers now know how it's being used. That's that's a lot, lots more to talk about when it comes to data privacy. You can follow Keely's coverage at statescoop.com and in links in today's show notes. Keely, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Jake. New York State's Interim Chief Information Officer is charting the next steps for the state's information technology operations. The state, which underwent a massive consolidation about a decade ago, will focus on data and privacy in addition to its already existing focus on cybersecurity. Jennifer Lawrence is the state's acting CIO. She tells me about her priorities and the state's next steps. There's a lot on your plate as the acting CIO of New York. I mean, what are some of those top projects, top initiatives that you have underway that, that you're really trying to push forward? Yeah, so we have quite a bit underway. Um, the Joint Security Operations Center building out our threat intelligence overall. We call it a whole of state approach to cybersecurity. So really trying to expand upon what we did last year, one, stand it up. And now we're getting to where we have endpoint detection. We're trying to roll that out more to the local governments. So we've spoken a lot about that. What we're also focused on this year is um, vulnerability management is big. Really digging into where do we have um, you know, legacy endpoints or legacy debt that we need to remediate and having a timeline for that. We can't do everything right now, but what can we get done this year? And then also additional things in security, you know, MFA, just in even training or user awareness. So we really have a big security focused program, but knowing that we provide IT services, ensuring we're including security in all those conversations around providing those services. Yeah. Uh, the JSOC's a great example of state and local collaboration. Mm -hmm. It's it's you know something that doesn't really happen yeah. super well <laughs> across the rest of the country. I mean, what are some of the takeaways and learnings that you you all, you all have found with the JSOC, and and how are things going there? I mean, this is going to sound you know pretty simple, but communication, communication, communication. Right, knowing who your peers are, knowing who would like to be informed, who needs to be informed, trying to keep everybody in the game and um, operating collectively at the same time. We you know internally and with our partners have regular meetings to ensure we're staying informed, staying lockstep is very important because things are moving. And when you get out of sync, there can, there can be a lot of confusion. So I'd say communication is key there. And you know, you, you talked a little bit about cyber and, and that brings to mind cyber workforce mm. and just workforce in general yeah. in state IT. I mean, how are you tackling this giant crisis? We are doing everything we can to tackle it. I mean, building the state workforce is, you know, priority to us. We really believe that uh, having that stability and that continuity of knowledge is huge, right? And then we also know that in hard times, hard economic times, that the state typically distributes more funding and therefore your state workforce is even more necessary at those times. And we typically increase um, the services we provide from a technology perspective during those times. So we are trying to think strategically, not only about how do we fill the gaps now, but going forward, we are having difficulties, you know, enticing folks to come into state service. We're trying to get the message out there. Um, I'm a public servant. I was in the Air Force uh, many, many moons ago. I enjoy being a public servant. I think there's a lot of people who do, but they may not know the message. So we're really trying to get the word out. We do have great vendor partners, so we're doing a lot to cover gaps, you know, on that front. But building the state workforce is really on our minds right now. Number one priority, I would say. You know, other things that, that you all are working on, you, you've recently hired chief privacy and chief data mm -hmm. officers. Uh, you know, how, does, how do those hires sort of fit into your strategy for transparency and, and data? Yeah, thank you for asking that. So ITS has gone through, as you know, like 
we've been growing over the past 10 years, right? Consolidation was, I'd say the first 10 years, kind of where we are now. We're a 10 year old agency. What's that next level of maturity? Well, that's where data and privacy come in. So how can we, um, in a secure, safe, private way where the user is actually deciding what can and can't be used, right? How can we enable better services to the citizens with those things in mind? And what happens now is we're gonna start engaging those um, strategies into our tech solutions going forward. So we're really building this overarching program where a tech solution has to include the data strategy, has to include the privacy strategy, also the security strategy, more upfront. We hit those things before, um, but it was very, you know, I'd say it was a little more myopic. Each, each level of waterfall approach kind of got brought in, now we're trying to do it upfront. What does that whole thing look like? And then have that conversation, where does it make sense? We say sharing data, I think that frightens people. We don't necessarily want to share data, you want to use that information to make a decision and move on. So maybe you don't need to store everything everywhere, right? What's the source of truth? Let's tap it, make a decision, and move on. I think that's where we're, we're trying to head, but obviously it's a big conversation. Yeah. You know, one of the things that strikes me hearing you talk is, I mean, New York is, is obviously one of the largest IT-budgeted states in the country. Mm -hmm. You have a massive IT workforce, mm -hmm. uh, and obviously you also have New York City down, down the road. Uh, you know, what, is, what does it mean to you to, to lead an organization like this at this time and to, to push all of these things forward? I mean, I'm honored, I mean, to be honest. I think it's an exciting time to be in state government. I, I come from a more business background. I had an information security you know, minor in my degree, but I really have always seen from the business perspective how technology can solve problems. And being able to be in those conversations and help lead and guide those conversations is huge for improving how we do business for the citizens on behalf of, you know, on behalf of the state, right? If there's benefits that need to go out the door, how do we ensure you're getting your benefits? I mean, that's really what this is about. And then if there's revenue that needs to be generated, how are we ensuring that's being you know, generated and, and taken in timely, all for the purposes of budgeting, right? So how do we make sure that wheel is turning? I, I think it's huge. So I'm very honored to be here. ITS has a great workforce. A lot of them have been through many changes, so we're a very adaptable. You know, If you look at what we've done over 10 years, it's pretty impressive, not too many, um, you know, folks have gone, you know, have been able to consolidate the way that we have in the time that we have. So it is pretty impressive. Jennifer Lawrence, acting CIO for the state of New York. You can read more about her at statescoop.com and in today's show notes. I'm Jake Williams, host of the Priorities Podcast. Next week on the show, you'll hear from Maryland's new CIO, Katie Savage, about her priorities in the role. You can subscribe to the show at prioritiespodcast.com and in links in today's show notes. Ohio's IT office is gearing up for next generation 911. The state has been working to put all the necessary mechanisms in place to soon allow residents across the state to interact with public safety and 911 through text messages, images, and video files. Katrina Flory is Ohio's CIO. She tells me about her top priorities and how she's gearing up for next gen 911 in the state. So, right now, uh, it's budget time in Ohio. So, we have a number of initiatives that the governor included in the budget, and we appreciate Governor DeWine's support in that space, so we've got funding for user fees for our multi-agency radio communication system for locals. We also have funding for initial build-out for NextGen 911, and also uh, funding that the locals will need for connectivity to that piece. And on the workforce side, so specific to cybersecurity, we've asked for additional cybersecurity staff um, and to you know, grow that workforce, the rescaling, retraining that we need to ensure that Ohioans have a secure experience with the state of Ohio. So next gen nine one one, you yeah. know, it's a huge, huge thing that's happening right now. Uh, probably not enough people talking about it across the community. I mean, 
Tell me how you're approaching that problem. What are you thinking about working on when it comes to Next Gen 911? So we've been working on it for a couple of years now. We've got a team in place. We have a, a committee that's in Ohio Revised Code. So that committee has been working hard to establish uh, rules around PSAPs and training and all those kind of things. We also did an RFP a couple years ago. So we have a vendor partner ready to go. We've been waiting for that ongoing funding source. So we've had a couple bills. We were very close last General Assembly, but didn't quite make it through. So right now that bill um, has been wrapped into our budget bill. So we're hoping to see that come to fruition as well as the additional funding that the governor's identified for initial build out. So we're excited about that. That's great. Uh, and cyber, obviously, top of everyone's list. It, it's continuing to be just a massive, massive priority for everyone. Uh, when we're thinking about workforce, I mean, what are some of the ways that, that you're thinking about how to, how to solve that, that yeah. crisis? So we work really closely with our human resources team. So with uh, Enterprise HRD, and we're looking at things. We have apprentice programs. We're looking at potential um, merit, uh, you know, pay increases around merit and certifications. Um, as well as is there opportunity for tuition reimbursement. There's a number of things. There's also within the budget, the Ohio Digital Academy is proposed, and that's really geared around cyber. That's really about recruiting from within the state of Ohio and training folks and deploying them to the agencies as those resources that we need. That's awesome. One of the things that I love about the State 250 Awards is, is really highlighting the people and the accomplishments of, of what's happening across the community. Uh, what advice do you have for your peers across the state and local community, and, and uh, you know, how would you advise them to, to follow in your shoes? Yeah, you know, I think you got to take every day as it, as it comes. Um, I'm almost two years into the role, which I understand by NASIO standards is long in the tooth, I guess. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, uh, I was in a meeting last week, and I told uh, some of my folks, you know, that dogs don't bark at park cars. So they were, you know, we've got a number of projects going on where we were getting some feedback. I'm like, that's because you're doing good things. You're making change, you're making it happen. So we just keep moving forward. Uh, and then the last thing, you know, I think that uh, the story of Ohio IT is one of, of really, you know, incremental progress that, mm -hmm. that builds on the previous foundation. Uh, how are you, you know, all these things in flight, all these things going on, I mean, how's that still coming to fruition now two years into the game? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when this administration came in, we had the Innovate Ohio platform, and we keep seeing that grow and expand. Um, we were doing some cloud migrations over the weekend in that space. We've come uh, now to having three and a half uh, IDs on our OHID. So between citizens and workforce, we're projecting up to five million by the end of the next fiscal year, fiscal 24. Over 1,200 applications are integrated. So looking to give that single sign-on user experience to Ohioans. So uh, we just keep, like you said, we keep building on, on those successes. Katrina Flory, the CIO for the state of Ohio. You can read more about her and Next Generation 911 at statescoop.com and in links in today's show notes. Red Hat's Doug Ross has spent nearly two decades in the state and local government and higher education tech community in various companies. Now at Red Hat, he's focused on helping those leaders modernize systems. Ross is a State Scoop 50 Award winner this year. He tells me about his career and what he sees across the industry. I've been in SLED for 17, well, 17, 18 years straight, and I really, really love the mission. Uh, you know, and, and that's, that's none more important than now. There's a lot of things that are converging and happening now, all the way from you know, t uh, taking applications that are that are monolithic and making them, uh, getting them, you know, uh, working with mainframe providers to modernize and get them into the cloud and helping states deal with the silver tsunami of the, you know, there's there's a great resignation and, and retirement happening 
Um, you know, so Red Hat's focused in a number of different places. They, you know, people think of, of Red Hat as, you know, Enterprise Linux, the old operating system company. And during COVID, we were really able to, to show off, you know, um, our cloud capabilities with OpenShift, our DevOps with OpenShift, and um, our automation with Ansible. And all of that fed into what was top of mind for, for states during that critical time. You know, and now what's happening is, uh, you know, we've got the ARPA funds, which, you know, some states took, some states didn't. We're working with a number of states to capitalize that, you know, on those investments. And, you know, we were lucky enough to have some of those investments go through Red Hat so that, you know, it's a once in a kind of sled lifetime opportunity for states to really modernize. And with the negotiations with the debt ceiling, um, it's, uh, there's, some, there's some pressure to get that money spent and get those plans delivered. Yeah. So, you know, modernization, you know, writ large is, the, is one of the biggest topics yep. for state CIOs and, and technology like what you work with and what you offer to folks is a big part of that journey. Uh, how, how are you, you know, sort of scoping this out and figuring out how to, how to make that incremental progress with these folks? Um, when we go in, I mean, a, a lot of states will come in and talk to us and, and there's, there's a home run application, a big one, a very critical one. And what we'd like to do is we, you know, we'll gladly help with a larger project um, and a critical project, but we try to find some quick wins so that we can modernize some, some applications that, that are definitely needed and critical, but they have, they're, they're not as time you know, intensive, and they will give the quick wins so that we can work with their staff um, and show that, that Red Hat can deliver on these kinds of promises. I think that's really critical. If you start with the biggest Mount Everest, Sometimes you can get stuck on the way up. Right. Uh, you know, modernization is one of those things that's never really done. Uh, but how do you how do you sort of see things evolving in the sled space over the next couple of years? Um, COVID has really the one thing it did is if you were thinking about the cloud, it got you into the cloud. And if you were thinking about you know modernizing, because a lot of that was just a lift and shift, and now it's just it's just you know kind of legacy mess living somewhere else. So where I see this is twofold. Um, you know, there's going to be applications that are going to continue to be modernized uh, now that they're in the cloud. But also, and more importantly, the new applications that get spun up each and every day, you can do that in an agile way uh, with a modern dev DevOps platform that you could you know, sync between different clouds once you get the applications live. And that's really where I see this going. Um, so, you know, we're going to continue down the modernization journey, but, you know, legacy or the new apps that are being built are, you know, they're not heavy, they're light, they're lightweight, they're efficient, you know, they either work or they're, and they're relevant or you can kill them quickly and start with something else. So that's really what I see. So again, you know, your state's in 50 winner this year, you've been in the sled space for, I think you said 17 years. Um, you know, with that in mind, what, what advice do you have? What words of wisdom do you have for, for your colleagues across the community? That's a great question. I, um, uh, I personally love the mission. Uh, the reason I got into SLED is, is I was doing big enterprise and you know, our son was just born. And my wife said, yeah, I need you to get off the road. And so I started SLED in New York City at a, at a big technology company. 
and I, I've learned to really love the mission. And you're going to have, you know, not every year is built the same. And but if you're, this is a marathon, not a sprint, right? We did a lot of sprints over the last 36 months with COVID, but now that we're getting back to normal, you know, there's going to be puts and takes, and this is a long game. And also realize the political landscape, you know, of people come and go. Um, and really understand, most importantly, understand your customers' challenges, you know? And like, like was said this morning, you know, if you're, if you're meeting people for the first time, do some research, you know? The more you understand about them, the more they realize that you care, the more that they'll open up. Red Hat's Doug Ross, a 2023 StateScoop 50 Award winner. You can read more about him and meet all the other winners of this year's awards at statescoop.com and in links in today's show notes. You can subscribe to the Priorities Podcast at PrioritiesPodcast.com and wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, be sure to leave a review or rating on the podcast page. They make it more likely that more people will find the show. This podcast is a production of Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. Carlin Fisher helps put it together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Until next week, I'm your host, Jake Williams. Thanks for listening.